Today is Wednesday, May the 31st, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Last December, Apple Senior Vice President of Software Engineering made the following statement. At Apple, we are unwavering in our commitment to provide our users with the best data security in the world. We constantly identify and mitigate emerging threats to their personal data on device and in the cloud. Our security teams work tirelessly to keep users' data safe and with iMessage contact key verification, security keys, and advanced data protection for iCloud, users will have three powerful new tools to further protect their most sensitive data and communications. Well, on May the 16th, which is just a few weeks ago, the Department of Justice charged former Apple engineer with theft of autonomous car technology for China. The charges were announced as part of a sweeping enforcement action led by the Disruptive Technology Strike Force. Four other cases were unveiled across the United States involving criminal behavior to supply Iranian forces with sensitive ballistic technology, Russian intelligence and research units with quantum technology, and sanctions violating exports. The United States has charged a former Apple engineer accused of stealing the company's technology on autonomous systems, including self-driving cars, and then fleeing to China. The DOJ announced charges in that case and several others involving an alleged theft of trade secrets and efforts to steal technology that benefit China, Russia, and Iran. Two of the cases involve what U.S. officials called procurement networks created to help Russia's military and intelligence services obtain sensitive technology. The former Apple engineer identified as 35-year-old Wei Bai Wang previously resided in Mountain View, California, and was hired by Apple in 2016. Wei Bai Wang worked as a software engineer at Apple from 2016 to 2018. In 2017, a year into his employment, four months before he quit his job at Apple, Wang accepted a job at the U.S.-based subsidiary of an unnamed Chinese company that was developing autonomous driving technology, and he began to siphon large amounts of sensitive commercial technology and source code from Apple. After his last day at Apple, the company discovered that he had accessed large amounts of of proprietary data in the days before his departure. Federal agents searched his home and in June of 2018 found large quantities of data from Apple. Shortly after the search, he boarded a plane to China. The DOJ indictment said Wang worked on Apple's annotation team and was granted broad access to databases which the Justice Department said could only be accessed by 2,700 of Apple's 135,000 employees. Wang is the third former Apple employee to be accused of stealing autonomous trade secrets for China. Wang has been charged with six separate counts involving the theft or attempted theft of Apple's entire autonomous technology source code, tracking systems, behavior planning, and descriptions of the hardware that was behind the systems. Law enforcement executed a search of Wang's home in California on June 27, 2018, where they found large quantities of stolen, confidential, and proprietary data Wang was able to flee the country even after law enforcement executed search, despite Wang promising that he wouldn't leave the country. Wang boarded a flight to Guangzhou, China, 
from San Francisco International Airport. In a press conference, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of California said Wang is in China and would face 10 years in prison for each count if extradited and convicted. The allegations against Wang came after another Apple employee, Zhao Lang Zhang, pleaded guilty in San Jose Federal Court to a similar theft involving trade secrets in Apple's car division. Apple's automotive efforts, known as Project Titan, have proceeded unevenly since 2014 when the company started to design a vehicle from scratch. A December report said Apple had postponed the car's planned launch to 2026. Reports filed with the state of California show Apple is testing vehicles on the state roads. Apple declined to comment on the case. Apple needs to practice what they preach, especially with security. The death of cable TV is coming faster than expected. As a growing number of cable TV companies are shutting down their TV service, This week, we learned about two cable TV companies shutting down their TV service. They joined a growing list of companies that have said TV is just not profitable and not worth their time. Instead, they're outsourcing TV or just altogether not bothering with it and shutting down the service. CenturyLink, one of the largest fiber providers in the United States, has for some time now not offered TV. Wow! Sparklight Cable and Frontier have all recently shut down their traditional TV services and offered a streaming-only package. Other cable TV companies have said they're looking at their options when it comes to if they continue to offer cable TV. Altice USA, the parent company behind Optimum Cable TV, recently said they are looking at options for new markets to outsource their TV service also. Currently, of the top 15 TV companies in the United States, two of them have already shut down their TV services and are no longer offering it to new customers. Optimum, the fourth largest cable TV company, not counting satellite, streaming, and fiber options, has said they are considering their options. This comes as cable TV companies lost a record number of subscribers in the first quarter of 2023. In the first three months of 2023, Comcast, Dish, and Spectrum lost over 930,000 subscribers. That works out to over 10,000 canceled subscribers every day for these three companies. Here's a rundown of each network subscriber loss in the first quarter compared to the final quarter of last year. In total, all cable TV and live TV providers lost 2.3% million subscribers in the first three months of 2023. That works out to over 25,000, 600,000 Americans cutting their cord every day. If this trend continues, cable TV providers lose 9.3 million subscribers in 2023. This comes from a report made by Moffat Nathanson that tracks cable TV and streaming services. This raises the real question of how much longer will cable TV be around. It's increasingly possible that cable TV could lose 10 million subscribers this year if cable TV speeds up even slightly. 2023 is increasingly looking like a turning point in how Americans watch cable TV. Ways to watch live TV without a cable subscription. We've been witnessing the slow death of the cable TV industry for a few years now, and streaming services are fast overtaking them as the go-to alternative entertainment providers. Some reasons for this include legacy cable bundles are getting more and more expensive, with average cable packages now costing more than $100 per month. It's simply too expensive for most people to justify anymore. Consumers are paying for channels they don't watch. The inflexibility of many cable packages means people are stuck with dozens of channels they don't want. Many prefer the ease and convenience of watching what they want, when they want, and on devices they want. This means wireless viewing on laptops, tablets, 
and mobile is becoming the increasingly more popular. So what is video streaming and how does it work? TV and video streaming services are directly competing with cable companies through convenience and affordability. Streaming services provide a huge range of price options. You can access a huge range of programming at the fraction of the cost of a traditional cable supplier. The choice is given back to the consumer. With a streaming service, you don't have to pay for channels you don't watch. Streaming takes advantage of our ever more connected world. Since you watch streaming services over the internet, you can watch your favorite shows anywhere with a Wi-Fi connection. You're no longer limited to just watching via your TV. So what's the difference between live TV streaming and on-demand streaming? If you're not quite ready to cut the cord with your cable provider just yet, then live TV streaming could be the option for you. Live TV streaming providers like Hulu, Sling TV, Fubo TV let you stream live TV via your internet connection as the shows are broadcast live by their networks. The streaming providers allow you to watch live TV on the go via tablet and mobile, but the overall experience is closer to that of watching traditional TV. On-demand streaming, on the other hand, instead offers a library of content you can browse and watch at your leisure. The variety depends on the different streaming services you use. But most providers have thousands of TV shows and movies available to choose from. Some providers let you download a certain number of shows to the device of your choice so you can enjoy them offline. The convenience of being able to watch whatever you want, whenever you want, attracts many people to on-demand streaming services. You're on no one's schedule but your own. That said, as more people cut the cord, cable subscriptions are starting to become obsolete, not to mention potentially expensive depending on where you live. Of course, one of the reasons for that is that you don't actually need a cable subscription anymore if you want to watch live TV. As you have an internet connection, there are plenty of ways you can get your live TV fix. Many substantially cheaper and not to mention more convenient than getting a cable box hooked up. With that in mind, the only thing you can still need to think about is how much content you want versus how much you're willing to pay. Several streaming services have taken advantage of the growing hose created by the shift from cable TV by offering their own live TV services absolutely free of charge. People typically look for a streaming service so that they can cut the cord with cable and save money. At the same time, many don't want to forego news channels, live sports, and seasonal shows. A live TV streaming service can meet both of these goals. Live streaming is similar to on-demand streaming with its all-digital functionality and ease of use across multiple devices. There's no set-top box, but it somehow resembles cable TV with offerings of local news channels, sports, and new episodes of current shows. Picking the right live TV streaming service largely comes down to price. Smaller-scale services like Philo, that's P-H-I-L-O, and Sling TV, may cost less than half of the monthly fee for pricier services like Fubo TV, that's F-U-B-O TV, and Hulu plus Live TV. Keep in mind, expensive services tend to have multiple tiers that can raise your price even further. On the most expensive end, the top tier plan for direct TV stream costs $150 a month, while Philo only has one plan that costs $25 a month. With Philo, you'll get a little more than 60 channels, plus the option for a few premium add-ons. Comparatively, DirecTV Stream Base Plan, which costs $70 per month, includes more than 150 channels. With channel lineups, it's not just the number of channels that matter to particular viewers, but also the type of channels offered. For its lower price... Philo includes no live sports and only a single live news channel, which may be perfect for viewers only interested in entertainment and lifestyle programming. For sports fans, though, it's worth the extra money to subscribe to Fubo TV, 
which comes with more than 28 sports channels in its ultimate package for $100 a month. There are a few options that all of the live TV streaming services offer, including cloud DVR storage, multiple user profiles, and simultaneous streams. Philo, YouTube TV, Hulu Plus Live TV, and DirecTV Stream offers unlimited storage for recorded programs on their cloud DVRs, while Fubo TV offers 1,000 hours of storage. Sling TV is more limited, with only 50 hours of storage available. Families may prefer services with parental controls to limit what kids can watch, which are available on YouTube TV, Hulu Plus Live TV, Sling TV, and DirecTV Stream. Large households in particular will appreciate the up to 10 user profiles available on Philo, as well as the up to 10 simultaneous streams within the same network available on Fibo TV. The number of TV streaming services with different channel offerings is massive. USnews.com publishes a very comprehensive report on what is available. They rank the best live TV streaming services of 2023. But ultimately, you decide what you want to view at what cost. By the way, this U.S. News report is quite comprehensive, and you can get it at the following. Go to usnews.com, go to the Technology tab, and then under it is Best Streaming Services. The FBI has some useful Wi-Fi advice that could stop a hacker from taking over your router. Last Saturday, the FBI released an advisory video targeted people running political campaigns. The audio advice in the video is also applicable to your router at home. Did you know there's one device that all your traffic goes through? Your emails, your web surfing, your smart refrigerator, They all connect to the internet through one device, your router. Hi, I'm JR, a special agent with the FBI. I'm here to share some tips to make your internet router more secure. Your router may be a standalone device, or it may be a part of a modem provided by your internet service provider. You might have more than one router in your campaign office or home. Protecting your router is just as important as protecting your computer. If your router is misconfigured, are not properly patched, you have a weak link where bad actors could get into your networks. First, let's cover how to access your router settings. A common way to access your router settings is to enter the following IP address into your web browser's address bar while your computer is connected to the router. Then, a login screen will appear in your web browser with your router's manufacturer name. Check your router's user manual or the underside of your router for the default username and password to log into your router. Once you've logged into your router, here's how to adjust the settings to make your router more secure. Change the router's default password. The default password is often the word password. Other common default passwords are listed on the internet where attackers can find them easily. So make your router's password long and complex and watch our video on passwords for further guidance. Frequently, Check to see if updates are available for your router. If so, run the update. These updates patch security flaws and protect against known attacks. Disable all remote access, including cloud-based router management. This means the only way to adjust your router settings is to be physically connected to your router. Most devices connected to your router wirelessly, which means you also need to adjust your wireless settings. This will help protect data that's communicated through your router without a hard line or cable. Here's what to adjust on your wireless settings. Your encryption level might be WEP, WPA, or WPA2. You should be using WPA2 as that's far more secure. If WPA2 is not an option, it's time for a new router. Look at the name of your Wi-Fi network, also called the SSID. Try not to associate your network name with the campaign. Don't put your name or your candidate's name or your campaign's name on the name of the network. Don't put a physical address like 
Office 201 on the network name. Don't put the brand of your router in the network name. Don't choose a common network name or your device might try to automatically join a different network with the same common name while you're out and about. A related point, when you're not at the campaign office, turn off Wi-Fi on your mobile devices, unless you're sure you want to connect to another Wi-Fi network away from the office. Check our video about VPNs for more guidance on this issue. Create a guest network with a different password and limit what information can be accessed on the guest network. Make sure even your guest network uses WPA2 encryption. You might be asking, is all of this really necessary? Where is the threat? In May of 2018, the FBI published a memorandum about advanced persistent threat actors using malware to target routers. If your router was infected with this malware, then here's what might have happened. Bad actors could watch your internet traffic and see or steal your sensitive data. Bad actors could send a simple command to your router and permanently disable it. Bad actors could use your router to launch a network attack on another device. Your router is an integral piece of your network and potentially a single point of compromise for your entire network. The tips we've discussed will make your router safer and will make it harder for bad actors to compromise your information. Remember, your voice matters, so protect it. Is China's PowerStar CPU an Intel rebranded silicon? The Chinese PowerStar P3-01105 CPU has popped up in the Geekbench version 5 online result browser. Importantly, the benchmarks system information section appears to confirm that this 4-core, 8-thread chip is quite certainly Intel-produced, as this socket 1200 LGA part has an A0653 genuine Intel CPU ID and purportedly uses the Intel Comet Lake architecture. Earlier this month, it was reported on the newly launched first-generation PowerStar P3 01105 CPU that China's power leader framed the chip as a homegrown product using the Storm Core architecture while remaining x86 compatible. However, there was quite a weight of evidence already pointing to the Chinese chip being a rebranded Intel Core i3-10105 Comet Lake CPU with 4-core 8-thread. Their designation is P3 instead of I3, and the number is 01105, and they just switch one number around when the I3 is a 10105. The new evidence from Geekbench is probably more than enough for most people to be certain about the provenance of the PowerStar P3-01105 CPU. However, we still must retain some doubt as pranksters fiddle with things like Geekbench Systems info reports just for fun. Power Leader has the ambitious target of selling 1.5 million units of its PowerStar P301105 CPU. We think that the CPU being a genuine Intel part can only help in this goal as the Storm Cores touted at launch had no history and even Optimus would expect some glitches in an actual first-gen product. PC enthusiasts and do-it-yourselfers might now be thinking about sourcing PowerStar P301105 CPUs for budget builds. However, Power Leader's launch suggests the chips will only be supplied with full systems. We shall have to see about that over the coming weeks and months. In some ways, Power Leader's rebadging of something as complex an American as the Intel CPU contrasts with the recent announcements that Micron memory products have been banned from organizations connected to China's critical information infrastructure, U.S. issues sweeping restrictions on chip sales to China. Manufacturers will need a license to sell chips to Beijing. The Biden administration announced sweeping new restrictions on the sale of semiconductor chips and manufacturing equipment to China in a major effort to impair 
Beijing's military and technological capabilities, according to the Wall Street Journal. The new rules require manufacturers like Intel and Micron to receive a license from the Commerce Department in order to export semiconductors and chip-making equipment to Chinese companies. In addition, the administration issued several foreign direct product rules banning international companies from exporting chips built with UX technology. So is the new Chinese power star P301105 CPU a perfect copy of Intel's i31015 CPU or a rebranded Intel i31005 CPU chip? Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few moments discussing you, the workplace, technology, and some of the things that may happen. Aiden reached out to me. I caught my coworker snooping through my work computer. Should I confront him about it? Or should I just report it to our boss? Wow. This is a, this is a tricky situation. It, it's, it's a game of chess that you've just been thrown into. You are halfway through this game already. And the pieces are scattered across the board. You have to think very carefully about your moves and anticipate your opponent's next move before you do anything. It's important to weigh out consequences, to consider the outcomes before you do anything. Okay. And we've we've found ourselves before in these situations where, yes, there's some some major issue going on and we have to figure out, okay, do I just confront my coworker or do I tell the boss? We're going over somebody's head. We're, we're, we're going and doing this end round around. We're tattling. And yet, what is on your computer? What are the details that are there? What were the different things that you saw on the screen when you caught your coworker? Was it a matter of, oh, yes, the coworker just looking over your shoulder? Or were they digging through all kinds of files and documents without permission? See, it all depends on that severity of the breach. And depending on what it is, you need to figure out what you want to do. Okay, let's say the coworker was snooping through without permission. This was, you know, they, they they were going through all kinds of files. Okay, did they discover anything? You may not know. Did they have anything that could impact your job or, 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 or impact the company? You may not know. So if if there are situations like this, serious consequences to the company, serious consequences to you and your job, yes, um, I, maybe you do want to go to the boss. Of course, you need to think about the relationship with your coworker. This may be a situation where you need to think through what happened. You need to kind of document it down and then take the coworker with you. You may you may confront them off to the side. You may decide to blow it off too. I don't know. See again, this gets into this office politics. I will tell you right now before we go any further. I am a nerd, so as a nerd, you're asking me a, a you know one of these uh, questions that you ask the you know the the relationship consultant or whatever from a technical perspective. I'm going to answer the rest of the way. This could be serious. From my perspective, having dealt with controlled environments, with security at, at, at a higher level than most companies, we have had policies in many of the companies that I've worked with. In the companies where I didn't have a policy in place, I put one in place. There should be specific policies in place for dealing with all of this. It's going to involve HR. It's going to involve supervisors to figure out what to do. So, yes, there can be all kinds of different things going on. See, access to your computer. This is one of the things that I tell people all the time. 
access to your computer should be limited to you and IT. One of the actions that I used to do, if I would go on out to somebody's computer uh, when I was a, a technician and I was working on computers, I would say, hey, do me a favor. Type in your password. I'm not going to look. You type it in. You log in, and then I'll do the work on the computer. If they weren't at their desk, I, I would just move on. I would say, I, I dropped by. You weren't here. I will come back later because I want them there. I want to, you know, and many times they would say, like, I'll just write down my password for you. No, I want the accountability. I want to know that they're not going to come back later and say, hey, you went, you know, wandering throughout wherever. No. Even when I go through, and this is this is a fun little trick, I, I, I fix somebody's computer. I will set it up so that their password has expired. They have to enter in a new password. Why? I don't want them coming to me later and saying, hey, I forgot my password. I don't know. You reset it right after I finished working with it. Hey, uh, I need, uh, you know, uh, I think you went all kinds of places later on without my permission. No, I reset your password. You may recall that. Whatever it is. I look to remove myself from this. So when we start talking about somebody snooping through your computer, there's some certain implications. What were they looking for? What were they hoping to find? Were they looking to sink the company? Were they looking to sink you? This isn't something you want hanging over your head like the sword of Damocles. This is a game of chess, though. Every move you make from here is surrounded by all kinds of this spy intrigue, the mysteries, all of that. And you've got to be very careful. This is not a situation you want to mess with either. This is not something you want to walk away from. This is unfortunate. It's uncomfortable. It is going to eventually dissolve any relationship that you have with that coworker, whether it's a matter of friendship or trust and trust. Trust is an important thing in the workplace. It's an important thing everywhere in our lives. So, yeah, I hope you've got something more to go with from there. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Temu, that's T-E-M-U, is losing millions of dollars to send you cheap goods. The Chinese shopping app is topping app stores in the United States, but it's burning money and squeezing its suppliers to a breaking point in a bid to take on Amazon. Temu, owned by the Chinese tech company giant PDD, has exploded onto the top of U.S. app stores since its launch last September targeting cash-strapped Americans with cheap, unbranded products shipped directly from Guangzhou, China. In just seven months, Temu's app has been downloaded 50 million times. But the reason that prices on Temu seem impossibly low is that they are. An analysis of the company's supply chain, costs confirmed by a company insider, shows that Temu is losing an average of $30 per order as it throws money at trying to break into the American market. The financial company China Merchant Securities has calculated that Temu, which is also operating in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, is losing between $588 million to $954 million per year. At the same time, the company is squeezing small manufacturers in China, pressuring them to cut prices to levels that make it almost impossible to turn a profit. Spending big on deep discounts in order to build market share has already worked well for PDD in China, and by the way, PDD is Pindudu, and its Chinese flagship company burst into the local e-commerce market in 2015. Differentiating itself from Taobao and JD.com, which dominated the market at the time, by selling cut-price white-label or unbranded goods and targeting people on lower incomes in rural areas to bring people onto the platform. 
It subsidized prices on everything from unbranded homewares to high-end smartphones. That is how Pinduoduo gained market share in China. In the United States, most of Tenmu's subsidies have come in the form of free international shipping. In reviewing multiple analyses of shipping costs, it suggests that the cost of shipping even a small package from Guangzhou, where Tenmu has its warehouses, the United States is around $14. Taking into account other costs beyond shipping, including discounts and cash coupons that Tenmu gives to customers, and services and administrative expenses, the average amount that Temu loses on each order to the United States is around $30. These figures were confirmed by the company insider, who, speaking on the condition of anonymity, says that the company's long-term target is for Americans to purchase 30 times per year from Temu, with an average order size of $50, meaning each user spends on average $1,500 a year. The average transaction on Temu is around $25. Temu's customer in the United States are mainly Asian or lower income buyers with less than $30,000 of annual household income. Temu sees flooding the market with ads that gain brand exposure as its only option to expand that demographic and plans to spend $1.4 billion on advertising campaigns in the United States this year and $4.3 billion next year, the insider says. In February of 2023, Temu paid a reported $14 million for two 30-second slots during the recent Super Bowl. Temu has paid for more than 900 app store search terms to get to the top of listings. To keep its costs down, Temu is putting the squeeze on its supplies back in China. The country's e-commerce industry rests on highly efficient manufacturing clusters which have sprung up in places like Guangzhou. Groups of connected companies run self-contained micro-supply chains, rapidly designing products, sourcing materials, and manufacturing them, often with short turnaround times. That has proved invaluable to fast fashion companies like Temu that want to bring on a trend and to bring a product to market. Many of these manufacturers have tried to go direct to the United States market using Amazon, but the gimmicks that they have habitually used to attract buyers on Chinese platforms, such as offering discounts or freebies in exchange for positive reviews, violated Amazon's rules and regulations. In September of 2021, Amazon announced that between late April and early September, it had banned over 600 Chinese brands across 3,000 different seller accounts for violating its policies. These small manufacturers are now struggling to access overseas markets while facing a slowdown in the domestic retail market driven by strict COVID-19 controls. That means that many have a large amount of leftover inventory that they need to get rid of quickly. Since Pindodo was already working with a large number of manufacturers, it approached them as it was preparing to launch Temu. Sellers say they saw this as an opportunity to clear out the inventory and to get another shot at the U.S. market. But once inside Temu's supply chain, sellers found it hard to make a profit. The seller has little control over pricing. Temu will often ask them to lower its prices And if the company agrees, the platform will decide what that lower price is. You don't have a say over it. If you are not willing to lower the price, they are likely to remove your product from their listings. Temu's quality control process can also be demanding. A slight difference between the Chinese characters written on a product and those in the photos can lead to a whole line being rejected. This happens very frequently. Temu recently approached sellers to list more items, but many small companies are reluctant to invest in developing new products because the profit margin is too low to make it worth the risk. PDD's push into the U.S. with Temu is costing it a lot and angering some of its suppliers, but it's born of necessity. As Chinese customers spend less, other giant e-commerce companies are pushing into Pinduoduo's core markets selling unbranded goods, and trying to capture a less wealthy demographic. That means the company has to look overseas. Exploring the U.S. market is the best, 
and probably the only strategy Pindudu could use when facing an unsaturated and overly competitive domestic market. But the U.S. market isn't just hard. It's increasingly risky for Chinese companies. Tenmu currently takes advantage of a trade loophole that allows for duty-free shipments up to $800 in the United States. By shipping small packages from its warehouse in Guangzhou to individual American customers, the company can essentially sell duty-free in the United States. But small business lobbies are advocating for this de minimis threshold to be lowered to $10. If that were to happen, Temu's cost would spike. As a Chinese-owned platform, Temu faces scrutiny from U.S. authorities who see the collection of data by Chinese companies as a national security threat. In April 2023, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission issued a brief that warned of data and supply chain risk emerging from Chinese-owned e-commerce platforms, including Temu. Calls to ban Chinese link apps altogether have become commonplace in the United States. In May, Montana became the first U.S. state to formally ban TikTok, the social media platform owned by Beijing-based ByteDance. The previous month, a CNN investigation showed that the Pindudu app can bypass users' cell phone security to monitor activities on other apps, check notifications, read private messages, and change settings, even though there is no evidence showing that Temu has, has similar data security concerns. Montana's governor included the app in a list of technologies, he said, are linked to foreign adversaries. Western governments are very scared of TikTok because it could direct people's thinking. But the address information and payment information stored in the Temu app is also very sensitive to the U.S. government. The U.S. government is concerned that personal data of American citizens could be transmitted to China for the purposes of intelligence gathering. If Temu gets big enough, the U.S. government might come to the conclusion that it has too much data on American users. But behind these risks, there is a chance that the supply chain just can't sustain the low prices that people have come to expect. In China, some sellers have already given up. A big shift happened in December of last year when Temu started to require manufacturers to bear half of the shipping expenses to ship products from factories to its warehouse in Guangzhou. That sometimes means being asked to sell at a lower price, but if sellers can't meet Temu's suggested prices, their products are delisted. The cost of processing returns is often higher than the value of the product being shipped, meaning that while customers in the United States feel able to send back their goods without penalty, they're really pushing the problem back down the line to hard-pressed sellers. For many sellers, whatever potential the Temu is processing cannot make up for the losses incurred selling on this platform. Just remember there was an old Latin saying, caveat emptor. In Latin, it meant, let the buyers beware. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and he's been reviewing some more products. And Marty, what do you have for us this week? Oh, shall we start with a robot? A robot. Okay, is this going to be part of the robot revolution? This is uh, you, you've got uh, you've got your uh, uh, Rosie the maid from the Jetsons. What do we have? Well, Rosie can reach above ankle level, and this can't. This is the RoboRock S eight. S8 Pro Ultra. I hope I get all this out correctly. The RoboRock S8 Pro Ultra Robot Vacuum and Mop and Dock. Okay, uh, so so the, so it's doing vacuuming and mopping and mopping, and it has tanks in the dock to pull out the dust, to put clean water in, to pull dirty water out. So it's doing. So it's doing. It's self-maintaining uh, to some extent. Okay. Now, the first time I ran the S8 Pro Ultra, I, I, well, I set it for maximum. I really wanted to give it a challenge, and yeah. I set it for maximum suction and the most intense mopping, and I went to bed. Now, yes. we can keep this review short, 
by just saying it was easy to see the difference in the floors when I woke. But <laughs> okay, here's some highlights. Vacuuming, sure. it uses a dual roller rubber riser brush pair. Let's try saying that quickly. Yes. For efficient baby high buggy bumpers. sweeping and fewer hair tangles. And get okay. this, it's cool. Ultrasonics determine if it's carpeting and how deep the nap is. Oh, so nice. Okay. If it's deep, it lifts the mop brushes high enough to never touch the carpet. Depending on what it's cleaning, mm -hmm. it can lift the mop, lift mm -hmm. the brushes, lift both. For example, it lifts both when it's returning to its dock. Okay. By the way, there's a deep mode setting for carpets. Yeah. That assigns the robot to clean the same carpet twice. Okay. So if you have some areas where there's just like a a, a low nap, it'll just do it once and higher nap, it'll do it multiple or times. Or if okay. you've got a dirty part, you can spot it on the map that's in the app. Okay. Nice. And there, Here, uh, go over this section once more. Does it do windows? <laughs> redo, redo. Does it do the dishes? <laughs> Does it brush and shine your shoes? I yeah, wish. Yeah. Uh, again, the doc sucks the dust out of the vacuum. Isn't it funny that the, the vacuum gets sucked out instead of sucking up everything from the floor like it should, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's just a temporary quarter. Uh the bag that's in there is a disposable bag. It's good for up to uh, seven weeks. So, so this is this is something that always concerns me on some of these because we do have we we do have uh, one of the cheaper ones around the house, and we found out that there's a little bit of that razor and blade principle going on. Yeah. Even though even though that was an expensive uh, razor, the blades are also expensive. The, the well, they, brushes these and yeah. Yeah, these dust bags are five to seven bucks, depending on how many you buy at once. Okay. Uh, the mopping uses a specific cleaner that's $19 a bottle, but you only use a capful in the dock's clean water tank. Okay. So, so a bottle should last a few months. Okay. And and their cleaner leaves no streaking at all, just shine. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. The mopping system, the mop disc wheel, pad things, is vibrational. Okay. Mopping runs begin in the dock with an automated mop wash. Mm -hmm. I, I love the dock. The the, the rock dock, uh, the ultra bags, uh, bags the dust from vacuuming. It washes and dries the mop heads after mopping. It empties the robot's dirty wash water into one tank. It supplies fresh mopping water with, with the cleaner from a mm -hmm. second tank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the robot can mop more than 3,000 square feet of floors before you need to refill that tank. Okay. My house is not that big. The app is so refined. It can show you robot scan maps in 2D or 3D for every level or section of your house. Oh, nice. De nice. Okay. Define rooms, define stay away zones, set schedules, automated quick cleanups after meals and more. A lot of customization in the app. And I should mention voice control. So Voice you decide control. if that works better than telling the kids to sweep or mop. <laughs> <laughs> the Roborock S8 Pro Ultra is about sixteen hundred bucks on Amazon. Ooh, okay. So it's so it's a it's okay, but yeah, considering you know the payoff, you know how long would it take if you were bringing in a maid on a daily basis or weekly basis to to mop the house? Oh, that, that's part of it. But the yeah. uh, the other part is when floors get dirty. Yeah, that dirt gets buffeted into the air when you step on it. Sure. Yeah. So you so are you want, doing yeah a little bit help. To help family health, and and that's worth even more than a healthy maid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I understand. Also, you have some cameras that you got in too. Oh yeah, the Anchor Ufi S three thirty Outdoor Wireless four K Smart Camera three piece kit. These are great. Three major pieces. Look, I'll, I'll try to divide and conquer. Two of the items are Ufi three cameras. These are four K cameras, two low light modes for either black and white infrared lit images. Those use less battery or color images using front LED spotlight. Uh, they uh, have solar panels to power them. They're on Wi-Fi, so there's no wires. You just screw them where you want them on them and point them the way they should go. Mm -hmm. 135 degree field of view, two-way audio, AI to recognize people, ignorable zones, zones on the images, uh, a, a home base hub. That uh, helps you bring everything into an app, works with uh, the Google Assistant or Alexa, and one home base can handle up to 16 cameras. The S330 three-piece kit, two cameras and the home base, about $468 on Amazon. 
Okay. All right. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm growing fonder and fonder of Anchor over the years. They've, uh, they've been doing quite a nice job of carving out a niche for themselves uh, and, and filling us in with good products. Yeah, they have very effective product definitions. Yeah. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Anyways, that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Blockchain and Healthcare, presentation on Thursday, June 1st at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has the meeting on Friday, June 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, June the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 13th, meeting time 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do your regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.